Ring of Light, Magic Might. All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and the Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with actor Darren Baker about Jace and the Wheeled Warriors, method acting, booth work, Broadway, superstition, and more. As always, thank you all for listening, and if you're listening to us on your podcasting platform of choice and you'd like to help the show grow, please leave a review. And if you happen to be watching the video on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe because it does help. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Little icebreaker I like to ask everyone. Why don't you take us back in time? You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? I'm not a book reader, but I am a fort builder and a troublemaker. I was the quintessential uh, rabble rouser uh, as a kid. I'd like to believe that for the most part, my parents said, oh, he's just being Darren. And, and then when I went off into the world, I was, I, was a pretty, I was a pretty tame rabble rouser as a kid. A lot of jokes, a lot of sort of that kind of fun stuff. If they said you can't go in there, that was the first place I went into. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then that led to, like, my journey off into the world was at 20. Well, at 20, I moved out of the house, and I didn't go the college route or, you know, the university route. And so at 20. Three, I moved down to Los Angeles and thought I was going there just to pursue acting. And that's when, you know, lots of lots of good trouble, lots of trouble, trouble. And <laughs> <laughs> but it, it all got me to where I am today. And I, I like to believe it made me a better storyteller. Hey, right. No complaints. <laughs> so did you grow up in uh, the Toronto area? Is that where your roots lie? I was born in Toronto. And as I mentioned, lived here till uh, at 23, I moved out to Los Angeles, mm -hmm. California. And I, I spent five years in LA prior to moving to New York City. And it's an amazing, that's a, it's, it's kind of a, you know, I'm not a religious man whatsoever, but my grandmother, may she rest in peace. My grandmother used to say, man plans and God laughs. Because because <laughs> my full circle route from, you know, Toronto, L.A., New York, now back to Toronto, where I have a home again, although I split my time between New York and Toronto, uh, is a is one that I, I never would have seen coming. Now, would you say that either your parents were were they artistically inclined at all? Do you think that's maybe where some of your acting interests came from, maybe? Definitively, my mom, my dad doesn't have a sort of an artistic fiber in him. I shouldn't say that. he's hilarious. He's hilarious. And I, I was fortunate enough to grow up with two dads. My mom and my bio dad or my, you know, my original dad split when I was quite young and then mom remarried. And I would say that between the two, my two dads, 
I picked up a lot of who I am today, but in terms of the creativity and the artist in me, it, yeah. it, although my mother was a hardcore businesswoman and a very successful one at that, she, I think, secretly always wanted to be a performer. She doted on that part of me and always encouraged it. And, uh, you know, sometimes to a fault. My parents, like, really, truly said, if you're going to go do this, and I, like, I was chomping at the bit from a very early age to do this. My mom is the artist in the family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What records were spinning around in the house when you were growing up? What kind of music did you listen to? Uh, that's an amazing thing because I don't know if you know this about my past either, but, you know, I started off very conflicted between wanting to be an actor and wanting to be a musical either singer or musical performer. As it turns out, I did seven musicals on Broadway in the course. Like, I've had a really varied career, but when I was a kid, in my house was everything from Rodgers and Hammerstein to, yes, Led Zeppelin to uh, Cy Coleman. My parents were kind of, when I grew up, they were poncho-wearing hippies at one point, and then they became sort of hardcore business people. But music was such a huge part of our upbringing. I mean, Cat Stevens, Carol King, James Taylor were always playing in the house. Music was always around. And I used to sneak into the basement. You know, not sneaking in the basement. The basement was for the kids to use. But I used to go into my mom's record collection. I would put everything on. But it was funny because even as a kid, like, why my mother would have bought a Cheap Trick album and I had, you know, the Cars playing or she had. And, you know, my mother was like she, completely eclectic in her music. And, I, and also my grandfather, her dad... He loved music, and I, I think I just, I think I inherited that. But I have a really cool thing to tell you about music in my family. Let's hear it. So my, my professional name is Darren Baker, and that's because when I was a kid, my mom remarried, and I took my dad's name, the man who raised me. But my real name is Darren Shore. Does that name mean something to you? Darren Shore. Not off the top of my head. Sure. Sure. Howard Shore. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm with you now. Howard Shore, who wrote a few movies you might have heard of, Lord of the Rings, Big Splash, Analyze This, Silence of the Lambs. That's my uncle. That's my dad's brother. Howard Shore, the composer. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Small world. There you go, right? Holy <laughs> shit is right. So you could say, and it's it's interesting because this is when I say it's going to be, this is going to be, it's confusing to the listener, but because I've already talked about two dads in the first three minutes, but Shore, which is my birth name, which I don't use as my film name uh, or my stage name, that's Uncle Howard. And when I was a kid, a kid, kid, he like little, like in my, you know, five, six years old, seven years old, my Uncle Howard, before he became a renowned composer, was in a Canadian rock band called The Lighthouse. And I remember going to these concerts and they, like, I remember sitting uh, on the side of the stage and I was this kid and, and grooving to Uncle Howard, who was <laughs> an amazing sax player. Did you ever pick up any instruments or anything yourself? Yeah, I did. I, I So I play piano by ear. I don't know how I play, but I, I can play. At one point early on, I started to fool around with composing, but I dropped out of taking piano lessons because anything my parents made me do, I didn't do. So, of course, I was one of those kids who might, you know, my sisters and I lined up and one had four to 4.30, one had 4.30 to 5, and one 5 to 5.30. And I think I was the 5 to 5.30 slot because I was the youngest, and I think that made me hate it even even more because I sit through their bad playing. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, I do. I still like to sit down at a piano and flute. But I thought at one point that, wow, wouldn't it be cool to compose for movies? But, you know. I You're just, still young. I'm just, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> Let's hope my voice reads young because uh, the listeners can't see me. <laughs> so, Darren, when you think back to formative films and TV shows that you grew up on, what comes to mind? Oh, wow. I mean, I was such a after-school TV hound. Like, it was everything from Hogan's Heroes to The Courtship of Eddie's Father to My Three Sons to Bewitched. I loved, oh my, I loved Three's Company, but then I was older by that point. So like, I loved comedy. I loved Get Smart. Get Smart was like, was such a hoot to me as a kid. Trying to think back to the movies, the movies that really had an effect on me. Television was huge because, you know, we had our, the kids had in the basement, we had we had our own TV. My sisters and I would fight over what time slots. So my sisters would come home, I'll never forget this. My sisters would come home after school and they would watch Young, The Young and the Restless, <laughs> which was a half an hour back then. And they watched it because my grandmother watched it. And then I would park myself there. And, you know, unknowingly, I think like, cause I, I pretended I hated it, but I think I got into it as well. Like I could still tell you half the characters and I was a kid, <laughs> yeah. but I only, I had to sit through it so that at 4.30 on the nose or at five, I could snag the, we didn't have remotes back then. You either had to walk up to the TV and turn it. And then we graduated to, you're too young. We graduated to a box channel box that had a cord that ran all the way it was oh, amazing yeah. i would grab that thing for the hogan's heroes time slot and boom it would tv was mine do you remember the first movie you ever saw in theaters i don't but i i, I distinctly remember oh probably like if the sound of music came out so my mother would take the three of us to things that she thought the three of us would like but i distinctly remember seeing jesus christ superstar mm. the movie at the eglinton theater which still exists but it's now a it's like a party venue, but it was this magnificent Art Deco theater in Toronto. And I remember being so riveted and mesmerized by it, but it freaked me out. And this is a true story. There must have been a little tiny hole in the, the foam seat that I was sitting on. And when the lights came up, there was foam bits all over me and everyone around me because I was so nervous watching it that I pulled all the foam out of the seat. Which was like, a, and here's a crazy thing. So Barry Denon, my career's been, I always say I've worked with everyone and I'm like the most, I always say I'm the most unfamous, famous person because I've worked with everyone. Like it's still amazing to me. Some of the people I've had the, the great privilege to work with, but imagine this, I'm a kid watching Jesus Christ Superstar, Barry Denon played Pontius Pilate. If you get a chance to go back to the movie, he's so he was so good in it. Anyway, Barry Denham played Pontius Pilate. And years later, when I moved to New York City at 28 years old, I was cast to play Pontius Pilate in a production they were doing at the St. Louis Muni, which is where the World's Fair took place. And it's the largest outdoor amphitheater. It seats 8,000 people. And they come in droves to see their season. And I was cast to do Pontius Pilate in Jesus Christ Superstar, directed by Barry Denon, who played it in the movie. I mean, I see how goosebumps, right? Full circle. Full, like unreal. Another moment, I'll give you another one. This is like, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm just kind of running with this, but I was a kid and my parents took me to see Evita, the musical, at the Schubert Theater in Los Angeles. And I wasn't quite 16 yet. I think I was 15. We finished watching the show and I turned to my mom and I said, that I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to do. She said, what? 
she said, well, did you like the show? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do this show. And at 24 years old, I was cast to do a production of it in Tucson, Arizona at a regional theater. But the better story is not only did I get to play that role, but a couple of years later, a few years later, I got cast to do a show with Glenn Close at the Schubert Theater in Los Angeles in Century City, where I said to my mom, that's the profession I'm going to choose. That's I'm wild. telling you, isn't it? You called your shot early on. <laughs> I did. I did. I'm, listen, I'm, 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 you know, they're part, they're, yeah, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I knew what I wanted. I watch kids today and it's, it's not as easy. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have phones. We didn't have, nobody liked our posts. Like, it, you know, like everything was pretty much in your head. You couldn't see what you could or couldn't fail at. You just had to see it in your head. And so ignorance was bliss for me. I just said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. And Did if it. I was to start today, I would say, what are you, nuts? What are you going to be an actor? <laughs> so, Darren, this is something I like to ask everyone just because you never know with someone's background. What scared you as a kid? Jaws. The movie. Mm, sign off 100% with you. Still scared of the water because of Jaws. Sharks. So <laughs> I had to sleep in my parents' bedroom on the floor after seeing it as a kid. And I wasn't quite... I wasn't like one of those kids who wouldn't get like we had a pool in the backyard. We were lucky, you know. We were, and I, I wasn't like I won't go in the pool. Kind of scared me. And the other thing, tarantulas, spiders scare me. I did a play with Adam Driver's wife, lovely actress, and Adam. They weren't married yet, and but he came to see her, Joanne Tucker. That's right. Um, he came to see her, and he came to the last performance. This was at the Cincinnati Playhouse which is an amazing theater in Cincinnati. And he came to see the last performance and he was just taking off on girls. And I, I gotta be honest with you, I was a little intimidated because it was a small enough theater that I could like the spill from the stage lights. I could see him sitting right there in the whole show and going, he hates me, he hates me, he thinks I'm a terrible actor. He was there for about a, you know, a handful of days. And the next day they took us, the cast and Adam Driver, and we got a special, um, the Cincinnati Zoo is kind of an epic zoo in America. Mm. And they took us to the Cincinnati Zoo and they gave us what they called a back cage tour where they, you got to see things that the folks just at the zoo didn't get to see. They took us into the room that had snakes and scorpions and the dreaded tarantula. If I could find it on my phone, I'd, I'd hold it up and show it to you. I'm, I'm sure if I took two minutes, I could. But Adam Driver was all over this tarantula, and he's quite an intimidatingly tall guy. And I'm sort of this average height, and I'm standing and looking at him going, how does he do this? How does he just hold that hairy spider? Ugh. I'm not kidding. Like, I am a total arachnophobe. Adam Driver goes, turns his hand to me, and he says, you got to hold this thing. And I said, no, 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 I'm, I, I, I can't. Anyway, put the thing on my arm. And he said, breathe, just breathe, man. And the tarantula starts crawling up my arm and crawling up my shoulder and it sits itself right next to my neck and I can feel its prickly little, whatever, his leg. Yeah. And he goes, smile, and he takes a picture of me. And I, to this day, have that picture. <laughs> I always say, I don't know. Like if I, like, and, and he wasn't even like Darth Vader's son yet. He was just Adam Driver from Girls. But like when Adam Driver puts a tarantula on you, I guess you take it. I do not listen. I don't even know if it's so many years ago. I mean, Joanne would remember me. I, I don't know if Adam would remember me by name, but we spent a day at Betty Zoo and I almost, you know, pooped myself. <laughs> 
Well, let me ask you this, Darren. Uh, what about your first time on stage as a performer? Do you recall, you know, did it go smoothly? Pants fall down? Anything like that? I remember it. This is crazy. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was summer camp in northern Ontario. I was seven years old. And at camp, each unit, I was what they call an inter. I was the youngest camp member at this particular camp. I was the only seven-year-old in 1972. <clears throat> um, 1972. I was seven years old and I had just turned seven in May, went to camp in June, and I got cast to play the mayor in Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales. I don't need, that's all I remember. And I remember that my camp counselor had a tuxedo jacket and I was tiny and I wore this tuxedo jacket with the arms rolled up and the tails probably, you know, dragging on the floor and a big, they made me this big giant top hat. And I walked out on stage and I didn't even get my first word out and everybody started to laugh. I stood there and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. It didn't intimidate me. It didn't frighten me. And I think in that moment in time, this sort of a sort of a warmth rushed over me. And I love I've loved it ever since. Did you ever have to deal with stage fright or was it just all natural to you? No, listen, I still get a little bit. And as I said, I was on Broadway for 18 years. So I, I, to, the stage is no stranger to me. And I'm, I'm so blessed to, uh, to have had as much experience in the theater as I have. But there's always, always a little something, something that's going on in my inside of my stomach. You know, some people call it butterflies, but I, I can feel it. And I'm always a little nervous walking out for my first entrance in anything. But I've always looked at it like, like it's never thrown me. It's always made me feel like it's meaningful. That's why I feel this way. But listen, there's not an actor on the planet, depending on the situation or, you know, especially like I've had to learn how to work on camera. I do a lot of televisions, you know, and there's always that moment after action or and action. And you just as you're leading up to it, like there's just there are moments when you're like, Holy shit, can I do this? this is fuck, am I going to screw this up? Mm -hmm. but, you know, but getting older and has its privileges and you realize that, you know, part of the fun is not knowing or messing up or messing up and going with it. And I'll tell you who's the greatest, the greatest, greatest, greatest. I'll plug him and then I'll plug the series. I had the great fortune last year of it came on at the end of last year. So we're into 2024 now. But on Netflix, I'm on a show called Painkiller. It's a limited series. Lovely role on that. And it was directed by the genius known as Peter Berg. Peter Berg, the great Peter Berg, who I think is just one of this time period in film and TV, I think he's just one of the great, great directors of his time. Working with him is so amazing because whatever you think it's going to be, it's not. He's mm. going to throw stuff at you and something happened in the middle of one of the first scenes I shot and he yelled something preposterous out to me. I was doing a scene writing a prescription to the Taylor Kitsch who stars in the movie and I play his doctor. I'm, I'm part of that storyline. And no spoiler alerts here, but it's it's about oxy, codon or oxycodon as people call it. And I'm the doctor who kind of takes him down that path. But Peter Berg yells, like, I'm just prescribing, like, here's Vicodin for the pain. Here's and this is the preemptory lead up to nothing's working. He's going to be taking uh, oxy. And he yelled out, do it like Himmler. Himmler as in like, Heinrich, Heinrich Himmler. <laughs> and I, I'm going, is he fucking with me? Like, is he just trying to get me out of my head? And Taylor Kitsch looks at me and the cameras are rolling and he looks at me and he goes, just go with it. And so I said, yeah, here we got the Vicodin and we got the Tylenol and the, right? 
And I didn't get what he was talking, right? And I'm scared and I'm nervous and I'm like, I'm like, what am I doing? And I was off kilter and off balance. And he goes, do it again, it's great, it's charming. And he starts, right? And so about three, four, five minutes into doing, trying to do this thing, I went, oh my God, he, oh, it's like the producers, Mel Brooks meets Patch Adams, right? The Robin Williams character, where he's the doctor who makes everyone feel good. and. I don't know how I got onto this tangent, but it's about the great thing about getting older and being an actor who's been doing this for 41 years is that when a director, a great director, takes you down a road or a path, you want mm. to turn left, says turn right, you kind of go, fuck the nerves, like forget being scared. There's no time, just see where it leads you. And it was the beginning of this entire character for this move, for this TV series. And I never would have seen it on the page. And I was elated that I didn't let my stage fright give me just enough to care to want to, I don't know, like ultimately it's not about pleasing your director, although most of us are just little kids who want the approval of their director. Right. And, um, but, but I ended up getting, a, he got a performance out of me that was one that I didn't know I had in me. You answered my next question, which was essentially, has there ever been a situation where a director has given you a piece of direction that has made a role or a scene or a, something click for you? Several have. And Peter Berg is, is like comes to mind because I worked with Peter recently. Two directors, you know, I, I'm naming some of the stuff that I'm really proud of right now. Not enough people, I don't think, watched Five Days at Memorial on Apple TV, but I have a lovely arc in that television limited series and John Ridley, the great John Ridley, you know, who directed the Oscar award-winning 12 Years a Slave, directed me in that and everyone else. And it was an epic, very difficult subject matter about Katrina and the hospital that was stranded. Uh, they were str they were all stranded for seven days in the middle of the mayhem with no electricity and they had to make decisions about what they were gonna do with these patients you know, who they would treat, who they wouldn't, who they would give morphine to. He just distilled, if I were a towel with moisture, he just wrung it out. And he just, he distilled me down to the simplest acting I've ever done. And he would always, it's so funny, you know, different pieces of direction. He'd make me, all of us, some oftentimes before we even started the take, he'd just have us breathe heavy heavy breath in this thing just it was so good i'll give you another one this is a stage thing the great william finn who wrote and you may not be as well versed or you're the audience in musical theater but great great broadway writer who wrote spelling bee which was a big broadway hit uh, and falsettos which was a big broadway hit and um he came to see me in a production uh, not the broadway production but a, a production of falsettos that i did he composed and wrote the piece and I said to him, I met him at the opening of the party, and I said, you got anything for me? And he said, yeah. He said, there's no joy in your performance. He said, where's the joy? And just that one nugget set me up for a, an award-winning production. <laughs> I, wanted, I, wanted, I ended up winning an award. Not that that's what it's about, but I, but right? As actors, we can't see ourselves. There's a handful of directors out there. I've been blessed. I've worked with some really good people, but there's some directors I'm, you know, and some people that can get in the way of an actor. Anyone who's collaborative, you know, lets you find it or finds it with you. Darren, this is a question I like to ask all actors that I get a chance to speak with. Because to us non-actors, the layman's, the term method acting has sort of become muddled and it's kind of thrown around out there. So I'd just like to ask you, what is your method? My method is <laughs> hope nobody finds out I can't act. No, no, that's not it. <laughs> 
Um, like 41 years and no one's called me out on it. That's not true. The New York Times once gave me the worst review I've ever had in my life, which is why I don't read reviews anymore. But what's my method? My method, I have over the years studied with a you know a, a bunch of different teachers, some great acting teachers. Um, some of your audience will know this guru and some may not, but there was a one of the great, great, great acting teachers in, in American theater was a woman named Uta Hagen who was also a film actress. Was she nominated for an Oscar? Several Tonys. And she had a very famous acting school with her husband. It was called the HB Studios in New York. Um, so I use a lot of her techniques and the various teachers there who taught me, which is living in real behavior. So you could always tell a student who was studying at the HB Studios in New York because we would walk into class and into the building with like suitcases full of stuff we brought from home to set up for our acting scenes because you live in, because we're always, we're always behaving, we're always doing something, we always have, so a lot of it is her technique and I have picked up so many other valuable techniques from different coaches and different teachers over the years. But at this point, I, I think I've developed my own sort of version of all of their versions but the words that i use when i dissect a script when i get the call to go and do a a movie or a tv show or a play or even when i'm asked to audition which i am all the time you know i'm not an offer only actor i'm, I'm a hard-working guy but you know we i still have to audition for most of my my work i use these two words stay curious curiosity and also the other technique that i use is how do I say this in the nicest way? Not giving... Can I swear on your show? Yeah, oh, say what you want. Not, not giving a fuck in the best way is the best way. There's no wrong in acting. There's no wrong. There's just doing. Acting is doing. Acting is is jumping in and, and, and giving... That's not to say that you don't do your homework. You don't read the blueprint, of the, which is the script. You don't pick up all... Like with the writer, there's lots of clues along the way, and then you have to fill in all the other blanks. But... You know, and the other great thing is I've had a very rich, full, very eclectic life. And I've crazy. I've got stories for days and those stories come with me. So I'm going to say a name, Darren, and just say what comes to mind. And that's uh, Jace and the Wheeled Warriors. Oh, wow. Jace and the Wheeled Warriors. <laughs> oh, wow. Jace and the Wheeled Warriors, 1985, turning 20. Darren gets cast as the title voice of a cartoon series that Mattel was the big player behind it, and a company called Deke, D-I-C, something, something in Shalapan. I can't remember the two other names, but Deke decided to come up to, they, oh, they did a, they did a nationwide American and Canadian search for the character, for the actor who was going to voice Jace, and I got cast as Jace, <laughs> and here's I, what comes to mind is they fired me after the first two episodes. I'm going to give you a story. So they cast me and I was so, I was, and if you listen to the first, like you can go online, I believe, because I have an almost nine-year-old daughter who I played it for a couple of years ago. And it's interesting because she loved it. I look at it now and it seems slightly dated. I know it was like this sort of cult cartoon. Yeah classic and so i got cast and i was very enthusiastic and i had done a ton of voice work that was how i started in toronto for whatever reason i did a lot of commercials and a lot of voice work i could read very well and i was 
very game and enthusiastic. They decided to do the show up in Toronto. They recorded the voices and there were some great actors on it. I mean, I don't know, Len Carlson, who played Herc, like one of the great, great voiceover actors, right up there with Mel Blanc, Dan Hennessy, John Stalker, Luba Goy. I'm trying to think of, uh, of some of the actors, great voice actors. So they cast me and they didn't like how Canadian I sounded. You know, Canadians, I said, sorry. And mum, and out, out, get out of the house, get out of the. I can't even do it now because I live in the states. Mum, I'm going out of the house. I'm sorry, I have to get a dollar, right? So they fired, they fired me, and my agent, who was amazing, her name was Rhonda Cooper. She's, she's no, she's retired now, but she was my agent at the time. And Doris, oh my gosh, I can't remember Doris's last name. She was my voice agent. She scared the shit out of me. This is the best. Doris was like this. She, I, oh, God. Tracy Ullman does this. Do you know Tracy Ullman? The Tracy yeah. Ullman show. She used to do this character. I can't remember the character's name. Betty or something. Who was this? She was a, a makeup artist, an old Hollywood makeup artist. And there was always a cigarette dangling out of her mouth with the like with the um, the ash, like just hanging. Anyway, Doris would be like, Darren, you got a booking. You're going to play this character named Jace. She sounded like, I don't know, like B. Arthur meets Brenda Vaccaro meets... <laughs> Right. Anyway, so, and she scared me. And so I, I would go, okay, Doris, okay, whatever. Anyway, Doris called me. She goes, hey, listen, kid, they want to fire you, but I'm going to get you paid for the whole series. And she says, I said, I don't want to get paid for the series. I want to do the series. Well, what do you want me to do? They, they don't like you. They think you sound too Canadian. I said, tell them I'll learn how to sound American. Can they find me a teacher? I was 19. I was just turned 20. They brought a guy from New York, Stuart Rosen, Stu Rosen, multi- Emmy award-winning children's TV director turned animation director. Mm. They flew Stu Rosen up from LA and Stu and I hit it off. And he said to me, you're going to bust your ass, but I'm going to save you this job. So he would take the script. He'd come up five days before the first, I want to say 10 episodes. They flew him up. They, I mean, they lavish amounts of money back then. And remember, nothing was remote. You couldn't patch people in. Like, if you wanted a director to come up from L.A., you had to fly him up. And he would stay at the Four Seasons Hotel in Toronto. I'll never forget. And I'd go over and we'd sit down and he would take up my script and he would take, he'd say to me, okay, he'd say, uh, say out. And I'd go, oh. And he'd say, say out. And I'd go, out, oh, out. Oh. And he'd say, no, it's out. And he'd say, say, ouch. And I went, ouch. And he said, say couch. And I said, couch. He said, say couch. And I said, couch. He said, now say out. And I go, out. And he go, there it is. That's it. <laughs> and he'd say the same thing with sorry. Say sorry. And he'd give me, and he would take a pencil, and he marked every single word that I sounded too Canadian. And I busted my ass. And, I, and he saved the job for me, Stu Rosen. I don't know if he's still around. But he was, and not only was he, he saved me that job, which was a huge deal for my career, which set me up for a lot of things financially. In the early stages, unfortunately, I, you know, I was young and I and I, I did okay out the gate. Sometimes I say it was bad that I did so well out the gate because for all the years I didn't do well. I thought it was always going to be that way. But they brought me down to L.A. And here's another Jason in the world, Wheeled Warriors, that you probably don't know. Oh, God, I wish I had the pictures to show you. <laughs> I'm going to find them and I'm going to email them to you. They decided that they liked me enough to consider doing 
the live action version. So they flew me, imagine this, 20 years old, Toronto boy, you know, who had dreamed of, you know, working in television and film and they flew me out to Los Angeles. And actually, this is crazy. God, all things lead back to the century, uh, century city, where the Schubert Theater was, where I said I was gonna be an actor, where I did Sunset Boulevard with Glenn Close. They put me up in the hotel, the Century Plaza, which is right across the street from it. And they had me go to, George Lucas's studios had something to do with where they costumed me. They built me a costume, made me a wig that looked like Jace. I don't know if you remember, but he had yeah. it striped through his hair like his father. I had my ring of light, which was this beautiful red stone. Um, I'll give you the cry in a minute, ring of light. And they tested me in a live event with kids to see how the kids liked me. And I don't know why it never happened, but it never happened. <sighs> That's depressing. I mean, I up until, I can't remember, and I wish I still had them. I had all the toys. Did you have the toys, the armed forces? And like, I had all the Mattel toys, I had all of that stuff. It was the coolest thing in the world. It really was the coolest thing. And then I did all these voice commercials for, Mattel as the voice of Jace. Like it was really an exciting, very exciting beginning for me. And I, I don't discount it at all. Sometimes I look back and I listen to the first five episodes and I go, I think, oh my God, you were so terrible. <laughs> it was so terrible. But they hung out. They 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 stuck they stuck it out and they and then I did another series for them called Cops. Officer Hardtop. Jason the Wild Warriors. Ring of Light! Magic might. And here's something interesting, you know, not to get too into my, because I don't really bring my personal stuff in, but it was a boy in search of his father. And I was a kid who, although I had an extraordinary father who my mother remarried and I, he became my father. My mother and my, you know, my dad split when I was a kid. And, and I think I was very sensitive to that. My dad moved away to Florida and I lived in Toronto. And I think that as a kid, like there was definitively something about a boy yearning for his father's, for connection with his father that I related to. And I think I, I think maybe I didn't know enough about that then, but I think maybe that's part of why they liked my voice. Now with those recording sessions, was it always just you in the booth? Was there ever any like communal recordings back then? It was, now this is an amazing thing as well. So the only person they recorded separately was Flora, was the mm -hmm. little girl, but everyone else, and this is so not done anymore. Is, animation is generally done one person in the booth at a time. Jason the Wild Warriors, thankfully, was done like a radio show. Oh, so we did everything in the same room. And it was, un I'm, I'm going to tell you, one of the reasons why I got pretty good at it was that I had the chance as a young, young actor to be in the room with some great voiceover artists. And they were so helpful to me. So yeah, I mean, you re-punch in lines here and there especially you have to sometimes go in app because we so we would record the sessions they would show us storyboards they would animate to our voices and then sometimes if something didn't work they would animate a line and then we'd have to go in and adr it which was great too because as a predominantly i'm predominantly a television actor now i mean i and film actor but i, I work in television a lot and i dread i dread adr i don't like going in and redubbing my voice i'm just one of those actors who doesn't mm -hmm. like when i hear the 
Chino loves it. And sometimes he loves to go in and redo his entire performance. I'm just not that guy, but I'm good at it. And I'm good at it because of Jason the World Warriors in 1980. <laughs> so, uh, Darren, out of all the projects you've worked on in your career, be it you know in the booth, on stage, TV, what have you, which would you say is the single most challenging? Is there one that you lost the most sleep over? Hmm. It's one of those, it's interesting. Let me give it some thought because the most challenging, well, this is kind of every single project and every medium. And I'm, I'm really blessed to be a voiceover actor, a television actor, a stage actor, and a movie actor. But my very first Broadway show, I understudied 13 roles. And I was 28 years old. I'm not an organized man whatsoever. I mean, I have a good mind for memorizing lines, but memorizing lines for one character and one larger character is way easier than memorizing 13 roles from smallest to fairly large and having to unexpectedly, in on Broadway, they're known as swings. And they're kind of the heroes of Broadway. And a swing can be a swing in a, a straight play or a musical. Generally, a swing is someone who swings multiple roles as opposed to a standby or an understudy. I swung 13 roles, went on for 12 of them repeatedly. Every time I had to go on, it was terrifying. But here's the crazy thing. There was one role I never, ever, ever, ever wanted to go on for. I stayed with the entire run of Sunset Boulevard. I did it in Los Angeles and then moved to Broadway with it. This was the one with Glenn Close. And I was an understudy. I took over one role for a short time, then went back to understudying. There was one role I prayed I would never go on for because I kind of blew it off. I never really learned it properly. And it had some tricky stuff that you had to do on a piece of the scenery that kind of intimidated me. And closing night, I'm backstage in my dressing room and they're halfway through the show. Uh, not No, no, not even halfway. Halfway through the first act. And the actor playing the role sprayed his ankle and they called backstage, uh, Darren, you're on for Dan. It was, it was Dan, what was his last name? Rick Sparks played it originally, and then it was Dan. And I had to go on for the last performance in a role that, and it, you know, and it wasn't one of those, oh, who gives a shit because it's the last night, who cares? Because, you, you know, it's Broadway, it's yeah. the NBA, right? And I had to go on and it scared the shit out of me. I got through it. <laughs> <laughs> Best acting advice you've received and who gave it to you? Best acting advice. Best acting advice came from a, an acting teacher of mine. You'd think it would have come from a, a director uh, or a, another actor. And I've, I've had master classes as recently as, I'll tell you as recently as who, but best acting advice I ever got was don't read into it. Just read it. Don't judge your characters. Don't judge your characters. Just like, and that's where don't read it. Don't read into it. Just read it, meaning just read it and then inhabit it. Don't judge it. And that came from Carol Rosenfeld, great acting teacher, still teaches and has an amazing acting book out. Carol, C-A-R-O-L, Rosenfeld. I can't, off the top of my uh, head, I can't remember the name of the acting book, but, and then the best, one of the best, and, and here's an example, a living example of being around that. I just had the great fortune. Oh, I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it. I'm sure I am because it's on IMDb, so I'm allowed to. There's a movie coming out starring Brian Cranston and Allison Janney, and it's called Everything's Gonna Be Great. And I have the great fortune of doing a lovely cameo in the movie with the great Allison Janney. I kid you not, sometimes when you're with working with an actor of that caliber, 
it, it doesn't matter famous or not just a great actor sometimes you have to like and i found myself saying darren stop watching her stop watching her because it was like a master class it was like sitting in the front row of the best acting class i've ever been to just stop and stop watching her just and just take her in but when i was done i just went to the director and to allison and i just said thank you for like i haven't been to acting class in some time thank you for giving me the greatest acting she's <laughs> unreal like she's like she's next level so this is uh, another question I'd like to ask everyone just to wind down here. Darren, uh, have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? I have, and I'll show you. So I carry in my pocket, I carry two things with me all the time, all the time. Now, this one is relatively new. It's got, if you, can you see that? Yeah. Sort of, yeah. That ruby colored, those flecks, that's raw ruby. My daughter is ruby. So... I carry this with me because it has, it's not just having her with me. There's something about the name Ruby. There's something about the energy of a Ruby. That's not the full supernatural story here. This I have carried in my pocket and in every costume I've ever worn on stage or on set. If there's a place to put it. If there isn't, then I try to put it in my shoe or in my sock. And oftentimes a costume designer will make me a trap door to have this I like to have it over my heart. Mm -hmm. This is a 1960 silver Canadian dollar. You see how worn that is? There's yeah. Queen Elizabeth. That's Queen Elizabeth on the back as a young girl. <laughs> this has disappeared, and I mean disappeared where it's gone, and reappeared in places I didn't put it. People are going to think I'm nuts. They're going to say, wow, he's, he's out there. More times than I can count. It has also fallen out into places where other people have found it and returned it this and now this which is with it go, the the ruby the stone with the ruby has gone through the same journey the ruby i have a daughter named ruby she's turning nine in april and they're always together my grandfather who's not with us my daughter who is with us but who's who's you know whose energy is in this i can't tell you how many times it has a it, it it it's guided by the spirit of something so just to put a bow on everything here darren why don't you tell us what's on the horizon for you that you can share without getting in trouble well you know there was a big strike two of the big ones that i, I, that I wish were coming on are now are, are now dead in the water but i do have everything's going to be great with alice janney and brian cranston which i'm so excited about and then i did a movie for all you Hallmark rom-com fans that is coming out very soon called Puppies Everywhere All the Time. And I play the bad guy, the kind of Cruella de oh, yeah. <laughs> And it is, it's, it's very fun and very sweet, especially if you're a dog lover. And currently, and I, and I mean this, if you're, uh, if you're, if you're a Netflix uh, or a, an Apple TV subscriber, Please watch Painkiller, not because I'm in it, but because I'm in it, but because I think it's great, great and very important storytelling. Netflix, Painkiller, a must-see. Well said. And Darren, I th want to thank you a lot for giving me some of your time, man. Appreciate you a lot. It's been a pleasure you know chatting I, with I you. you and, I'm, and and I, I love this work and I love what you guys do and and I'm I'm honored to be a part of your podcast. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Darren. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> <laughs>
Ha 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 